0: This episode includes discussions of rape and anti-Semitic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Check the show notes for details.
1: Welcome to Movie Catchup, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on a previously unseen movie recommended by the other. I'm Greg.
0: And I'm Leanne. And we're trying our best. Today we're talking about cabaret, and it could happen to you.
1: Before we get into the movies, let's catch up a bit. Uh, what's been happening with you, Leanne?
0: Most recent uh, thing that is of any excitement is I started cross stitching this weekend. Um, I came across a, a fun pattern that somebody had shared in um, a Discord server. I think it was last weekend that I immediately bought. It's a dumpster fire that says 2020, which just feels appropriate. Yeah. And since this is a long weekend, I decided that I was going to start it this weekend. And it's going really well. And I'm very proud of it. And I've already purchased a couple of additional patterns to work on.
1: That's how it happens, right? I have uh, one cross stitch in a drawer right now that I bought maybe six months ago. Got everything for. I think you were even with me. It's still in a drawer. But one day, maybe soon.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just sit down and work on it. Um, I can give you some good tips that I got before I started. I've been wanting to start cross-stitching it, for quite a long time. so seems this It just
1: a little daunting. How are you finding the difficulty of it?
0: It's not bad. Um, I mean, the pattern that I'm working on is fairly simple. So um, now I'm in a part where there's a bunch of colors that kind of overlap in the same area. So that is a little bit of a, um, a difficult thing, just trying to make sure that, you know, I'm putting my needle in the right place and planning my stitches properly, but it's going okay. I did mess up a tiny little bit when I was counting, so everything is very slightly off That's by fine. one stitch, but this is like all of just the fire part on top, so I don't think one off stitch in this particular area is going to make a huge issue in the end i don't think it'll be too noticeable
1: i love how these uh traditionally perhaps old lady type crafts are coming back in such a big fashion everyone's cross stitching everyone's knitting doing all these crafts that like traditionally weren't seen quite as i don't know hip but they've come back in a big way like there's cross stitch everywhere now and it's all super great
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a shift away from, like, the more traditional sampler-style cross-stitches. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of people who are making, you know, very modern things. Nerdy cross-stitch. One thing that I see a lot on Reddit is one that says, um, please don't do cocaine in the bathroom. (laughs) Um, So a lot of people do that one, which is just, like, a funny thing to have in your bathroom. Like, even if you obviously know people who probably aren't cocaine users
1: mine is a uh, a pokemon cross stitch um i forget what it says but it's a jumpluff my favorite pokemon and there's not a lot of jumpluff merch out there so i wanted to kind of make my own and it's like some tacky phrase not like live love laugh but it's like <laughs> a traditionally tacky phrase given a little new meaning in a nerdy way
0: it's yeah great. i think the the shift towards like more interesting cross stitch patterns is because there are a lot of um, programs where you can design your own and I've mm-hmm. heard about people who just use like excel to make their own patterns so it's a lot easier to have an idea and just make it happen as opposed to relying on a book or somebody else to design it for you and then you just have a lot more freedom with uh, subjects that you want to do so the other two patterns that I bought one it says uh, cat hair is part of the decor in this house because I have a cat and I feel like that's nice. a sentiment that truly resonates with me um the maker of that one also has one that says dog hair is uh, part of the decor in this house and uh, the other one I got is one that says please leave by nine nice <laughs> which spoiler for you is something I'm hoping to do as a birthday present but we'll see <laughs> what happens with that love it yeah but no I'm enjoying it a lot um it's a nice break from screens because I do spend a lot of time oh, for either sure. watching shows or playing video games or just being on computers or my phone in some capacity. So it's uh, a nice little meditative thing to pay attention to and just sit with the cat and work through. And then you get the satisfaction of this very cool finished item that is made just from a bunch of threads poked through holes a number of times. Love it. What's new with you?
1: Not too much this week. Um, this was the joyous week that was the release of Cats on Blu-ray. I've Very excited. Cats 2019, uh, which, as you know, I am unhealthily obsessed with. Yes. So the, the day it, launch, uh, it released, uh, due to not being able to rush to a store and buy it, uh, I went on Amazon, and oddly enough, it had two-day Prime shipping, even though Amazon has the big, like, pandemic things won't be shipped unless they're essential very fast well apparently cats 2019 is so essential that it has two-day shipping still <laughs> uh, so by midweek i already had my copy of cats it and how many it times if you the, watched it only once sadly i was gonna throw it on yesterday again but i've only watched it once um i have to watch it with commentary next very excited not as many special features as i'd like But uh, it's actually the first Blu-ray I own. I have a lot of DVDs. Like, my DVD collection is getting pretty big now. Mostly musicals, but it's uh, uh, quite a healthy collection. And this is the first time I bought one on Blu-ray. It came with a DVD and a digital code, so I felt it was worth it. Nice. So I popped that in my PS3, which I've never played a Blu-ray in. Um, And it actually was surprisingly really nice quality. I... I've kind of been living in the past with my TV that was only recently updated to 1080p and uh, only recently getting a PS3. So it all feels very new to me still, which is Mm -hmm. a little sad. But like, I'm like, ooh, it's so shiny and new, this 2006 console that can do HD. Yeah. (laughs) So fancy.
0: Well, any upgrade from older technology always feels like that, even if it's not particularly new itself.
1: Yeah, I moved on from the PS2. I'm actually thinking about getting a PS4. Um, I know they're kind of in hot demand right now. All the consoles are with the current uh, pandemic lockdown. People are spending a lot of time indoors. Um, but probably when the PS5 comes out, I'll see if I can nab one really cheap. I have a lot of games I want to play on it.
0: The idea of a PS5 is just
1: i know, right? so crazy. I, st- I still have about 50 PS2 games I'm trying to catch up on, so... Yeah, but I guess that's our life, catching up on things. (laughs) Well, let's jump into the movies for today, then. So my pick for you was Cabaret, the 1972 Liza Minnelli vehicle, uh, directed by Bob Fosse. He didn't direct a ton of movies. He's more known as a choreographer and did a lot of theater work, directing theater. Um, But this was one of his big movies that he won the Oscar for, as well as directing Sweet Charity and all that jazz. Um, And like I said, it is the Liza Minnelli vehicle that kind of shot her into stardom as being not just uh, Judy Garland's daughter anymore. It also stars Michael York and a wonderful Joel Grey. Um, Tomato meter for this one, 95%. I think this is the highest tomato meter one we've watched yet. Um, wow. Yeah. Not a lot of reviews, older movie. Um, the reviews they do have on there, though, 95%. Um, so general summary, Cabaret is set in the interwar period Germany in the early 30s, and it follows Brian Roberts, a British man who's moved to Germany to teach English lessons for money as he's working on his doctorate, and uh, his roommate there, Sally Bowles, an American performer at a local nightclub with big dreams of becoming a movie star. Uh, The movie mostly follows them as they're navigating their life and relationships, while tensions in Germany are brewing with the Nazi party's ever-growing control over the country, which mostly kind of plays out in the background until the end as things start to brew up and up. So I picked this one for you because uh, we were going over all the musicals I own that you've never seen. And when this one popped up, it kind of shot straight up to the top of my list as just it's such a classic for me it's really one of the first musicals i watched that transcended the genre a bit more from what you think of as like a more judy garland esque movie which is very much like almost like a fairy tale esque story it's just kind of a simple romance there's light ballads and some singing and dancing and they fall in love whereas this one was the first one that kind of took the genre and the first one of the first ones I saw that took the genre and pushed it into a more political social kind of climate and did some really interesting things with the songs themselves and it's just it's great songs are great is great I just thought you'd like it so what do you think
0: so three things uh about what I knew about this movie going in was that it stars Liza Minnelli <laughs> that it was about a cabaret and that's it's a musical that's really kind of all I knew. Um, and those three things are largely, I mean, other than Liza, are not really that big of a part of the whole thing. I mean, like, it's a musical, yes, but even that part is sort of not uh, a central focus. But I did like it. Um, I found that although I've never actually seen the movie, um, I was, a fil- I was familiar with a lot of it, if not most of the music and performances, since there is a lot of reference to them
1: mm-hmm.
0: through various uh, pop culture references and recreations, yeah. like the song. Um, maybe next time I'm very familiar with uh, Kristen Chenoweth's rendition from Glee, um, and a lot of the other songs, uh, I found that I was generally aware of them, so I was familiar with those in that way. I found when I was first watching it, I was a little bit confused and concerned because there's no music through the opening credits. So I thought the version that I was watching was like not working properly or something. And it's probably like a three, almost three full minutes of intro where it's just like full silence before you get to the introductory cabaret performance. Yeah. I loved the costuming. All of the costumes through the whole movie from the cabaret outfits to everything that Liza wears throughout the movie are just really, really, really gorgeous. I thought that the camera work of the cabaret performances was really incredible, especially the, the opening, um, Bienvenue one, just the way the camera is placed and the different angles and everything. It was just really, really uh, spectacular.
1: They, they use the bar as this, really good central um, piece they keep coming back to and it's filmed so well and like you said the costumes what really got me the costumes is they definitely weren't aiming especially in the cabaret part they weren't aiming for pretty like none of the girls or the atmosphere was pretty it was kind of grungy the girls almost look zombie like in a lot of scenes with the, the dramatic makeup and everything is very dark and moody like art Mm -hmm.
0: housey yeah it's definitely not supposed to be a high class uh location and i was thinking uh, as i was just re-watching some of the movie this morning that in like the opening dance sequence that some of the girls on stage their eyes are just so dead
1: yeah which is zombie like
0: yeah and that's not consistent in all of the performances but it's definitely something that's there it's like they're on stage but like they're kind of checked out in terms of the performances
1: Yeah, with the performances themselves, I really like how this movie it's it's I believe diegetic is the term where all the music in the musical is being performed on a stage. It's not someone going into a fantasy land and singing to themselves.
0: And every song
1: paralleled what was happening with Brian and Sally and the rest of the cast. Every song kind of flipped between the two of them for the most part and really mirrored what was happening in a heightened way.
0: I don't know if this is the right framing for it. And that's probably not the right word either, but it felt um, chorus, like, you know, like Greek chorus, like yeah. where sort of between scenes, like there's this musical interlude that is in reference to what previously happened or what is going to happen kind of in that way.
1: Um, so at the beginning, when we are introduced to Sally for the first time, and we really get into her character, What did you think of Sally as a character? I'm very interested because she's a very, very interesting character.
0: As a character, I'd like her. As a person, um, I feel like she would be very difficult to be friends with from my perspective. Like, uh, she's such a fast talker. Like, poor (laughs) Brian. From the moment that he meets her, like, he just does not have a chance. Because she is so good at creating a situation where, you know, you are like, there's a number of situations where she's like, Oh, you're going to teach Fitz how to speak English. And Oh, you're going to edit this book. Mm -hmm. And so quickly, she shifts the conversation to something else that nobody has, you know, a real chance to object or to draw the conversation back there so that they can uh, interact with what's being proposed in an adequate way. And so Brian is just consistently just like, I guess.
1: Yes. One of the reasons this movie really sticks with me to this day is because I've had a very similar relationship to this with a friend. um, Kind of coming out of high school into early college years, I had a friend that was very much Sally Bowles. This kind of larger than life, very magnetic personality that you just feel good being around, kind of. There's just this draw to this person and especially as someone who is very much introverted and shy, just the things they can bring out in you. And like you said, like just how Sally kind of plays with Brian, almost like he's a doll, but it really elevates Brian out of his, like his very sheltered kind of introverted life. And she just takes him and swoops him out of that into her life. And it's very much a selfish thing she's doing. You get that she likes Brian, but she just she cares about Brian, but really, it's all about her.
0: Yeah, there's a scene early on where they're walking down the street after he's come to see her at the show, and she is like, "Oh, tell me everything about yourself," and like he barely gets to say yeah. two words before she suddenly yeah. cutting him off to focus on her acting aspirations and, yeah. um, you know, her personal life.
1: Yeah. Their whole meeting is really great at the beginning of the movie. Like, you really understand her so quickly. Her first song, Mine Air, she sings, is such a good encapsulation of her. And within a few minutes, like, you know who Sally is. They Mm -hmm. do a really good job of setting that.
0: I know that you were talking about the political focus of this. I, I... I really liked the parallel narrative of the growing anti-Semitism and the yeah. Nazism in Germany. Um, like mm-hmm. it was, it was definitely a side, but it wasn't something like, say, Sound of Music, where you see people who are Nazis, but like nobody really ever yeah. talks about what that means and you know what kind of. I had of,
1: that comparison down here yeah. too.
0: Like there, are, and there's like a lot of places in the film where that's directly interacted with. Um so there's the one scene at the cabaret where they're doing the music performance, I forget which one, and it's contrasted with um some Nazis like beating a man to death in a back room. Um yeah, there's that's
1: um oh god, what's that number again? Oh no, it's not one of the musical numbers. That's when they're is it one of
0: the musical numbers?
1: I know what you're talking about, yeah. yeah. And
0: it's then a really there's a scene later on where Sally and Brian are with Maximilian and they're driving down the street past this um, like market stall that's been destroyed. And there's a dead body in the street. People are just standing around and they're making a comment about like, Oh, the Nazis will deal with the communists and then we'll get control of them. And then while they're driving by this, Sally is going uh, on and on and on about um, shopping and like just spending money. It's like such a interesting juxtaposition, the way that, just in terms of how people can see this yeah. happening, but also kind of play it off as no big deal, uh, which is very timely to a lot of things that have been going on recently yeah, within, sure. I would say, like the last five years, which is a long time. Um, and there's also a later scene where Brian like calls out a man, I think it's at the boarding house. Um, who makes like some anti-Semitic comment with really with respect to something on the radio. And the man is like, well, this is what they're saying in the papers. And Brian's like, well, just because it's in the papers doesn't mean that's true. And that's also like a really interesting thing to sort of directly speak to um, the anti semitism the idea that just because, you know, something is being reported on, doesn't mean it's factual, all of those kinds of things um, compared to a lot of movies that have been done before this that included references to World War II, but, like, didn't really speak to it in any way.
1: It was definitely really well done with, like, the beginning of the movie, you see them in the cabaret at the very beginning of the movie, and they get kicked out. Um, They kind of just get shooed out as just, like, a a nuisance. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the movie, they start to get more tolerated. You get the line oh, they're going to get rid of the communists and then we'll get rid of them type of thing. Yeah. And then it kind of really changes at the musical number Tomorrow Belongs to Me, uh, where they're all in the park and the one um, um, child gets up and starts singing this uh, Nazi rallying cry and suddenly you see waves and waves of people stand up and sing along with him. Mm -hmm. And There's just only a few people left now. They're still sitting down. And then Brian and Maximilian, I think, rush away. We'll talk about Maximilian. We'll get there. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. But they rush away. And then Brian has that great line, like, you still think you can control them after seeing this.
0: Yeah. I also really it liked... Um... In there. It
1: gets dark. Like, the dog scene, like... Oh my God. Yeah.
0: I really did like the whole thing with Natalia and Fritz where, you know, she expresses oh. legitimate concern about being Jewish yeah. in Germany at this time. Well, maybe and let's,
1: let's uh, talk about them for a second. So just to kind of set them up, uh, early on in the movie, you get introduced to Fitz, who is taking English lessons from Brian. Um, and at the same time, um, oh God, what was her name again now? Natalia, uh, she's the a, a rich daughter of um, a Jewish family who runs lots of business. I think in in Germany,
0: they have a department she, store or something. Yeah,
1: uh, Brian has the good luck of getting to teach her English lessons as well. I think they're like connected through Oxford, where he teaches, or something. And Fitz basically starts off like, "Oh, she's a rich. Okay, I'm gonna go over. She's not. He's not even met her. He's decided he's gonna woo her." <laughs> Because she's rich. And he is broke. Like, I think he's got gambling problems and stuff. I forget. But, yeah. yeah. He's just a mess. <laughs>
0: I didn't notice it until I was re-watching the scene uh, earlier today. When they're having their conversation party. And there's, like, a close-up of the cuff on his shirt. that he very slowly yeah. like, pulls his jacket over. And I didn't notice the first time I was watching it. But he does that because it's, it's frayed. Yeah. So definite visual call to sort of his financial situation that he isn't able to yeah. purchase new clothes so that it looks more respectable thing.
1: the first time that uh that natalia comes over to have english lessons fritz happens to be there at the same time having english lessons and they all have a a conversation party where they sit around and practice speaking english and sally being the very crass person she is just immediately brings it back to sex and uh screwing and none of them know what the word screwing means and it leads to this elongated and hilarious scene. I really liked Natalia and Fritz though um their whole arc kind of being like that secondary love story throughout the whole thing really helps anchor the movie especially in the time frame and uh linking it right back into the the Nazi storyline because we find out that uh Fritz ends up actually falling in love with Natalia who ends up falling in love with him, even though he started off just wanting to gold dig. And now, and she's very much aware of that, but then they fall in love. But because of all the tension, she refuses to marry him because she's a Jew and he's not. Until we find out that he actually is a Jew and he faked his papers when he came to Germany uh, to be a Protestant or whatever. And so in the height of all this, um, like her dog gets killed by the Nazi party Uh, They're just looting businesses. They're murdering people on the street. Like It's getting really graphic. And in the middle of all that...
0: I don't think her dog is necessarily killed by the Nazi party. It is just an act of anti-Semitism in general. So it could have been anybody.
1: I think we see it the Nazis break into her house. Like her yard and do it.
0: I don't know. I don't know if it was... I think they were uh, in uniform. I, I just remember that she opens the door and the dog is on her front porch so I think there's uh, a way to read it as it could just be literally anybody performing this act of anti-Semitism. I
1: think we see them in uniform back like yellow her from the streets though and we saw them break into her yard. Yeah. Regardless it's same thing like it's it's getting really really bad and in the height of all that is when Fritz decides to um, come out as a Jew and they get married and it's they have this wonderful like traditional Jewish marriage, like in secret, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, it was really good plot line.
0: Uh, one thing about the Fritz and Natalia story that um, really surprised me when I was rewatching it this morning is, so Sally suggests sort of offhand to Brian that because Natalia is a virgin, the best way to deal with it is to pounce on her. And later on we discover that after Brian relays this information to Fritz that he does this when Natalia's invites um, Sally over for tea to discuss what happened and try to understand what she's feeling. And uh, it full out sounds like Fritz rapes her <laughs> because she's talking about how she was uh, shouting and fighting him. and But then she had what we can presume is like an orgasm. So she thinks that, like, she had similar feelings. And does that mean that she's in love with him? And I was like, wow, yikes, that's not great.
1: I read it fully as he pounced on her and they were making out on the I couch. I don't know.
0: It it wasn't until, like, I really it's, realized it's, that she said that you know, she was fighting him and she was shouting that there was definitely an element of non-consensuality there.
1: Oh, definitely. Like, the we're led to believe that... Fitz has no clue what to do. And then after getting this kind of pretty terrible advice through Sally, he decides, okay, I'm going to just jump on her. And he's clueless as well. Like, we are led to know that Fitz knows nothing about romance either. No one in this movie does.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you can tell that the advice that Sally gives is a result of um, some trauma in her own life. Yeah. That's
1: been done to her. Yeah, I, I read it as that Fitz jumped on her and started like making out with her and she's so prim and proper and had no clue what was going on and then kind of sparks in her a realization and it's I think the whole idea that it's terrible advice and yet somehow it led to everything working out yeah. unbeknownst to Sally who when she finds out to her credit when she finds out that Brian actually did, or, um, Fritz actually did pounce. She seems kind of horrified. Like she's not, she doesn't realize the things she says have power or that like people are listening to her really. She kind of just says these crazy things offhand.
0: Yeah. So much of her personality is her just being very flippant. Like, um, I know we're going to talk about Maximilian in detail, but just as a jump ahead, um, when they're at some dinner party and she's sitting at the head of the table and she's just going on and on and on and on and on to all of the other guests, it really just seems like she says, whatever comes to her brain as a way of keeping people engaged in conversation, whether or not she actually has any idea what she's saying or if she actually believes what she's saying.
1: And a lot of it is I, how I read Sally is at least that she is fully doing this all to convince herself. I think a lot of this you can see in um, the scenes with her father or talking about her father where you find out at first she tells all these grand tales about her dad. And then Brian comes home one day and she's just like sobbing because it's her birthday. And it, she was supposed to meet up with her dad at the train station. Instead she got a telegram. And the more sad part about the telegram is that it's exactly ten words. Because anything over that is extra.
0: Yeah.
1: And she actually, it's one of the first times she breaks down and is actually really authentic in the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, The note that I have for that scene um, prior to her being stood up is imagine describing your father as sexy and devastating. So I'm going to meet with my there's another adjective she uses in there, but I forget what it is. But she describes him as sexy and devastating. And I was like, wow, those are not words that I would ever use to describe my father. No offense to my dad or anything. But like, those are just not words that I would ever use.
1: Of Sally's imagination in her mind that her dad is this big shot, like, he's just everything, right? And, like, what the story she tells, only a few scenes after breaking down to Brian, she's at the fancy dinner party, and she's going on and on about how much her father dotes on her, and how much her father loves her, and, oh, he does everything for me, and all this stuff, and, like, we know at that point it's a lie, but... I think Sally is fully, like, fully convincing herself when she mm-hmm. says it.
0: There's also something she I says. Think um, I think it's to Natalia. And it might have been in the scene where she was talking to her about what happened with Fritz. Where she makes a comment that I got the impression that she had also been like sexually abused by her dad. Um, when she's talking about how when she was young, men have always been attracted to her. Um, so I think yeah. there's some element of her building up her dad as a more positive figure than he is in a number Mm. of different ways.
1: Yeah. Another scene that kind of ties into that, that I really like is near the end and we'll get into the more of the relationship with them later, but when they're laying in the field and she plucks two clovers and makes a four leaf clover and just with the most sincerity turns to Brian and says, Oh, we must be lucky. Like, And she's really doing everything she can to convince herself of it. It's really tragic, but like, and you know fully well that for all her dreams and aspirations she has, how she's constantly so convinced that she's going to become something, you kind of get this sense that, and the music tells you essentially, that she's going to live out her days singing in this cabaret until she meets her end one way or another. Um, Jumping back a little bit then, so... After the whole Fritz and Natalia storyline, we get introduced to our next kind of big main character, Maximilian, who, um, how do they meet again? Oh, it's when Sally is at the dry cleaner and barely knows any German and can't uh, speak to the woman at the dry cleaner. And Maximilian shows up um, and helps her out a little bit and then rushes out into the street where Sally follows him to realize he's got this expensive car
0: or something and is... Well, he rich. offers he offers it to drive her somewhere, and then yes, she finds out right. that he's got, like, a limousine-type thing. Yeah. I also love, um, just as another jump back, but related to this, and Sally's German, is when she first meets Brian,
1: um, oh, very, yeah. like,
0: right at the beginning, he, he asks how long she's been in Germany, and she says, oh, forever, but then it's really only been, like, three months. Yeah. It's just, like, her whole perception of time, and she's like, oh, I'm starting to think in German. I'm like, considering you are living full-time in Germany, that probably would be to your benefit and that definitely comes up in a lot of different places where she's trying to communicate, but she's not really, I feel like that maybe yeah. is a, a very American thing is yeah. to be in a foreign country and just like not make the effort to speak the language there. Well, I
1: guess before even Maximilian shows up though. Um, so Brian and um, Sally upon kind of the, the first night they meet, I think, sally tries to jump brian's bones essentially and brian acts like is startled by it and basically confesses that like i don't know i read the scene i don't know how you read the scene but he says i've tried uh to to be intimate with very many with many women and it's just never
0: gone through the motions of having sex with three girls and each time it's been disastrous
1: I read it the way the scene worked out and the way that Sally reacted as Brian, at least in his mind, isn't attracted to women.
0: I mean, he acknowledges that. She says, you know, maybe you don't sleep with girls. And he does say that he doesn't yeah. sleep with girls. Um, my note there, I mean, I've read that scene as... It's a very
1: interesting scene. There's a lot being said, but they don't outright say a lot.
0: Yeah, I read it as Brian possibly being asexual even though i know that yeah in reality it's more probably that he's gay given the time period and but
1: i don't think he's really experienced a relationship with a man at this point either i don't know i think it really he just doesn't know anything of like what he wants at this point and then i don't know how many scenes later but eventually they do end up kind of falling for each other uh what was the catalyst for that again?
0: I think it's after she meets Maximilian that things really get started there.
1: No, I think no. they meet Maximilian after they're in a relationship. I've got to, like cuz I know maybe this time is the song that plays when they first fall for right, each other. Right, yeah, I yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Um and that's such a good song. It's just like this this crazy unshakable optimism for the future.
0: Oh, it's after um it's after her dad stands her up. Yes, that's he's correct. comforting her, and that's just kind of where things yeah. start for them.
1: Yeah, when she has the scene where she breaks down about his dad, he it's is just dad. so yes, uh, she's he's just so available for her and there for her, and they're such good friends. And during this like emotional heightened moment, they uh, start kissing, and then it fades to black, and we realize, okay, well they, he clearly, we assume they fall into bed time. together. <laughs> Uh, and then it yeah. She
0: even says, you know, like, oh, maybe those other yeah. three girls were the wrong three girls, which yeah, yeah. honestly is a terrible thing to say because it's stupid, and also for if Brian were an asexual character, which I think it would be interesting to read him that way, uh, despite the sexual relationship that he has with Sally.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That like that's a very common thing that. Uh, asexual people yeah. here is like oh maybe you just haven't like met the right person yet and it's yeah
1: it can also very much be read as um my mind is blanking not bisexuality um pan he could be v- read as very much pansexual because it's not until he falls for Sally as a person that he's romantically attracted to Sally
0: yeah
1: or uh, physically attracted to Sally I should say he has to have that romantic uh, emotional connection first and i think that is true for brian you don't do sure. you mean
0: demisexual pansexual demisexual pansexual is when you're attracted to people regardless of their gender or gender presentation demisexual you need to have like some sort of intimate relationship with someone before you're sexually attracted to them
1: okay yes that's what i mean yeah
0: yeah, I would agree. I, I definitely uh, consider that as a read for his character and the way that that worked out.
1: And then after they kind of get together and they have um, a little bit of bliss and maybe this time kind of plays over the top of all this, uh, this montage scene kind of, which I, that's kind of, that's probably my favorite song. It really encaptures that unshakable optimism that Sally has, that something's bound to begin. It's going to happen, happen sometime maybe this time um and you can tell it's the first time Sally's had a relationship that was in any way kind of positive relationship
0: mm-hmm. it definitely speaks to how she thinks of herself as a person you know like um not a loser anymore um, nobody yeah. loves a loser so it really is revealing of her sort of internal thoughts about herself yeah
1: It's also interesting that that, while that song is playing at the cabaret section, no one in the audience is reacting positively to it. It's like, for the first time, Sally is just singing an authentic song. It's not sexy. It's not selling her body. It's just kind of a ballad to the audience. Mm -hmm. And the audience clearly did not come there to see a straight ballad sung on stage. They came there for a cabaret. And they're just, like, stone-faced.
0: Yeah, and at the end, she gets, like, a smattering of polite applause.
1: Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of foreshadowing that, like... Kind of foreshadows the end. Number two, Cabaret, which is kind of... Or Welcome... Not Welcome to. Life is a Cabaret. uh, Which is just the opposite of that song, really. Um, But then after that, we get finally get to... Like we said, the introduction of Maximilian, who is the most fascinating character of this thing for me. He is this like rich, smarmy, yet like there's really something alluring about him. Sally completely falls for him, and Brian is very hesitant at first as Sally uh, tries to convince him. Oh, it's okay. I know how to control men. I know how to. I, I've done this all the time. Uh, we're just gonna get what we need from him. Um, it's you who I love type of thing. We're just going to string him along as she's getting fur coats and caviar and really living it up. And,
0: trips to Africa. And-
1: yeah. but And the whole time, Maximilian is very much aware that Brian and Sally are in a relationship, doesn't care. And in fact, from the beginning, is constantly inviting Brian along, trying to buy Brian gifts, like the gold cigarette case being like this kind of central thing I loved the
0: continuous gifting of the gold cigarette case until yeah. Brian finally accepts it yeah. also Maximilian is fully married
1: oh yeah and his wife we're led to believe knows all about this and I would honestly think she probably does
0: <laughs> when he says that she's in Cologne contributing to the arts I definitely read that as like Having sex with artists.
1: Yeah, probably. Being
0: being a muse or something. They were
1: definitely ahead of their time in the openness of their relationship and their views on sexuality.
0: I think that around this time, like coming out of the 1920s, that there was sort of a a loosening of attitudes towards sex in a bit.
1: Especially in Germany, the interwar period. It was all underground still. All underground. But there was an underground movement at this point for like, queer movements and poly and things like that were starting to really pop up yeah. underground. so
0: they're not too much of a deviation from the norm, but they're definitely not um, the norm.
1: Well, the how open they were about it was... It was really something. Like, Maximilian was showing them about town yeah. in the open together, essentially. Like, they were kept... Uh, they were his kept boy and girl. So
0: the tension, like, the sexual tension between Brian and Maximilian when they're in scenes by oh each other, is just that's why... It's That's
1: really good. <laughs> the
0: initial conversation with um, Sally and Brian about his sort of sexual proclivities. Um, it was like, yeah. in the end it was like, he probably is gay. And it's really so much because of how his interactions with Maximilian go. Like there's a the one scene where he's just changing his shirt yeah. and Maximilian like gives him a sweater. And there's this charged moment where they're making eye contact where Brian is shirtless. Yeah. And is was like, okay, yeah, this is a lot.
1: I think we're led to believe after that scene is perhaps when they start because, spoiler alert, I mean, if you're watching this or listening to this, yeah, we're spoiling the whole thing. But at the towards the end of the movie, there's a scene where Sally is and Brian are kind of fighting over Maximilian, essentially. Maximilian is just pieced at this point. Uh, he's kind of moved on and just kind of left them. And Brian and Sally are arguing. And Sally just screams out, screw Maximilian. Or no, Brian screams out, screw Maximilian. Sally looks at him and just pointedly says, I do. And then Brian looks back at her and says, so do I. <laughs> and it's just this realization that the whole time they've both been sleeping with Maximilian. It's great. It's like the best line in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I definitely wrote down throuple goals at one point. <laughs>
0: it's like, you could have had it all, but you had to make it yeah. about yourselves. Yes. I mean, the whole song Two girls or two ladies is like essentially suggesting you know, an orgy situation, or like a you know a polyamorous relationship, and then they don't. The weird know thing that about group, which is the
1: filmed version of that, and I don't know how it was originally staged, but in most stage productions since the 90s, at least, Two Ladies is always done with a man in drag and a woman, and uh, the MC character. Yeah, it parallels Sally Max and Brian a lot better that way. Obviously, you've got the MC character played by Joel Gray in the movie. And in this, he just has two actual women. But in the other big famous production with Alan Cumming, who played the MC character, he had a man in drag and a woman. It's a really good number, if you can find it on YouTube. The other number that kind of plays over the whole Maximilian stuff is uh, Money Makes the World Go Round, which is really good as well.
0: Yes. And um, the other song that kind of it goes back to our discussion about um, the anti-Semitism as sort of being a more central part of the movie is i forget what the title of the song is but it's the one where he's dancing with the gorilla uh, yeah and i didn't immediately um make a connection that the gorilla is supposed to be uh a jewess until he like i don't says think it 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 it's as supposed the aside to be the end. that you
1: realize it at first it's not till the end of the number really i think yeah
0: mostly i didn't sort of make the connection because there are uh other Uh, ethnic groups that get depicted in that way and that's kind of where my brain went first until at the end and i I was like okay i think
1: the whole point of the number is that it's supposed to be funny that uh the numbers um if you saw her like i do you could see her like i do yeah and i think the whole point is just that like uh aha isn't it funny he's singing about like a gorilla that he's in love with and then at the end when he says oh god what's the line at the end
0: something even if she's a Jew something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. At the end he basically just like, oh, she's a Jew, not that it's not that she's a gorilla that it's a, a problem. Yeah. It's that she's a Jew that's a problem. I think that's the punchline. But
0: like the the exterior perception is supposed to be that Jewish people are like yeah. this. But I also like black people are also frequently presented yeah. that way. That's kind of why my first thought when I was observing that was that's what was supposed to be presented but it ended up sort of subverting my expectation in that regard but given the rest of the context of the movie it made sense. Maybe I'm just not as fully um, aware of the various anti-Jewish sentiments in a presentation like that that I wouldn't immediately recognize I'm not
1: sure you're supposed to immediately jump to that. I think that's the whole point of the reveal at the end of the number is that it's like it's not the first thing you're supposed to jump to otherwise the line at the end wouldn't really be funny. One more thing from the argument they have where, you know, screw Maximilian, I do, so do I. There's another line in there, too. It's a great scene where it's like she calls herself like a femme fatale and that she can just control men. And then Brian looks at her and says, you're about as fatale as an after dinner mint. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I believe that's also the scene where we find out that Sally is pregnant and they don't know whose baby it is.
0: I think that must come after the fact because when Sally reveals that she's pregnant, this is a scene that I loved um, because she goes to find Brian. I think he's in a library, but it could be a bookstore. And it's dead silent. And she goes in and just loudly she goes, God damn it, I'm having a baby. Like drawing so much attention to herself. She definitely could have delivered that news in a very different fashion, but it definitely goes to her dramatic nature. And then they have a conversation later after that about um, whether or not... Brian is the father or who the father might be because she's still working and sleeping with all manner of other men so it's not necessarily just Brian or Maximilian as the option
1: yeah and then they get into some very frank abortion talk which I don't know my interwar period history that much it's I like watching movies a lot from this time period but just the very frankness they talk about that Sally talks about the abortion here and It is referenced like it's going to be a little difficult to find a doctor to do it and all that. But she knows someone already, I guess, in her line of work. She probably would. Uh, It's just very frank talk.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked the presence of the coat and the fact that she specifically says, oh, I could sell my coat to pay for the cost. It's a good uh, check-off gun. At the very end when she shows up and she doesn't have this fur coat immediately you immediately, anymore, know what happens. You immediately yeah. understand yeah, he what's happened looks at her yeah. and goes
1: where's your fur coat and immediately he realizes what uh, what she's done which is definitely a heartbreaking scene because they in between her announcing she's pregnant Brian basically says I don't care whose baby it is I'm fine with that um, we can move back to England I can finish up my degree. Like, we can have this baby. We can live in a little cottage in the countryside type of thing. Paints this beautiful picture. And Sally, for the moment, gets swept up in that kind of fantasy and goes along with it. But you see that she's not really, like, her heart's not in that. She isn't the kind of woman that wants that life. That's not what she wants for herself. And living in the fantasy of that is something. But actually doing that really scares her.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's also probably uh, an internal acknowledgement that she's not ready to be a mother and probably that she's yeah. not.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: She wouldn't be a very good mother either. And ultimately, you know, her body, her choice. But yeah.
1: Yeah. And she goes ahead and, and without letting Brian know, has the abortion and there's... This tragic scene, and then the movie essentially just ends with Brian going back to Britain. He like fully realizes that Sally wouldn't have been happy. They kind of have a somewhat am- amicable parting, and she just keeps proclaiming that she's going to become a movie star, that she'll be fine, uh, she's going to make it, um, and he just kind of rides off, and we're left with the the final um, life is a cabaret number where it's so positive and uplifting, and she's singing all about uh life is a cabaret, live how you want, be open, be free. But she's singing about all these women she knows who partied so hard and lived up life to the fullest mm-hmm. that they died early. They died young. And it's this really tragic yet happy number that really encapsulates Sally really well as this very optimistic but tragic character. Yeah,
0: she's... Unfailingly optimistic, but she understands the reality of her situation yeah. at the same time.
1: I think it's we're led to believe she knows through this number that she's not going to make it out of the cabaret. <sighs> Very good movie overall. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about that we need to before we finish up with this one, though, for sure, is Bob Fosse's choreography. We didn't talk anything about that. Uh, this is kind of like one of his really well-known movies for his choreography especially like the um mine air the the chair number with all the dance scene and so good yes it's got such a, a it's just it's so iconically fossy you just look at it and you just know. yeah
0: i mean relatively speaking the choreography in this movie is fairly simple um but i think that lends itself well to uh the mm-hmm. size of stage that the cabaret is taking place on um, probably the experience level of the people who are doing it but it's all very effective um, and like the two ladies song the part that involves the sheet that whole sort of in and out suggestion using that visual element uh, is really really neat really well done and of course like the intro um, the Venue uh intro song is really well choreographed one thing in respect to the choreography and also the camera work which i mentioned at the outset is i like that at the cabaret almost all of the performances are filmed from the perspective of the viewer like they're all yeah. beneath the stage more or less um so it really frames um the performance as being performance for the viewer and not as like a straight on kind of it was thing. also
1: nice seeing the reoccurring like drag queen characters at the club too they're great one moment where Sally uh wants to slip away from this old man she's seducing so she just like passes him to one of the drag queens and he seems none the wiser she
0: does I made a note there that said unfortunate trans joke because she says oh. oh just wait until yeah. he finds out what you know has and I was like <laughs> but you know not every element of this particular story
1: also a joke you hear in any episode of Drag Race today not that that's a good thing but not the kind <laughs> of joke that's gone away
0: yeah, it's just definitely based on the source material and the time that this yeah. movie was made, um, not everything is going to age perfectly well.
1: Um, speaking of that, so this movie, I should say, is based on um, the memoirs of Christopher Isherwood, um, his semi-autobiographical novel, The Berlin Stories, mostly. So uh, Christopher Isherwood is a gay man himself, and this is the Brian character is based on him and the Sally character is based on someone he knew in Germany while he was giving English lessons. There's a lot of uh, interesting things they've changed from that, especially with like Brian's character. Obviously Christopher Isherwood never had a relationship with the Sally character from what I remember. Um, It's uh, for anyone who's interested in cabaret, the, um, I Am Christopher, I believe is what it's called. There's a really, really good movie, 2011. Oh, Christopher and His Kind. Um, 2011 BBC movie with Matt Smith that is uh, a more faithful retelling of just Christopher's novel. Um, So it's a lot of parallels, but uh, some interesting differences. It's like Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of in that way, where I believe Breakfast at Tiffany's also, uh, he's gay... And they're just really good friends, and like how that changes the dynamic. Whereas Breakfast at Tiffany's, again, they fall in love in the film version. Um, very interesting how that happens a lot.
0: Yeah, it's almost like in Hollywood, Honestly, a man and a woman can't I mean. just be friends, even if one party is yeah a confirmed queer.
1: <laughs> but for 1972, this movie is. Uh, very open about sexuality, very open about a lot of things, and uh, I can see why it is still a classic. Yeah,
0: I mean, considering it was made in the 70s and what was going on politically in the 70s with respect to women and reproductive rights and all of that other stuff, I think it was kind of just the right time for this movie to be made.
1: So what would you give this movie on our ketchup scale? Is it perfect as it is? Does it need a little bit of ketchup? Or would you have to douse this one in ketchup?
0: Um, I would have to say it's perfect as is. I mean, it's kind of a time capsule. Uh, it's iconic for a reason, but um, it's not like there are other, aren't other uh, adaptations of the source material that are equally good. But in terms of this particular movie, uh, I think it is what it is. And yeah, it for sure. I would agree. I, I would changes. say it's perfect
1: as is. Um, there's a reason it won, I don't know, like eight Oscars or something. Um, for Bob Fosse and for uh, Liza Minnelli, who this like, yeah, really made Liza Liza with a Z.
0: <laughs> okay, so moving on to my pick for you. Um, for this episode, I asked you to watch the movie It Could Happen to You, which is a 1994 release starring Nicolas Cage, Bridget Fonda, Rosie Perez, Stanley Tucci. Wendell Pierce, Isaac and Isaac Hayes. Uh, I have a note of notable cast as Emily Deschanel of Bones fame. Um, she's, I think in a very like blink and you miss it scene. Cause I certainly missed it um, where she is uh, an animal rights oh. protester who throws yeah. paint on, I think it's Rosie Perez. So just a notable cast uh, note there. Uh, the movie is directed by Andrew Bergman, who directed the movie Striptease, Honeymoon in Vegas, and a movie called Isn't She Great, which I don't know anything about except it stars Bette Midler and well, Nathan Lane. Uh, it has a Tomatometer score of 71%, oh, wow. um, but only 54% audience. So the premise of this movie is, uh, interestingly enough... Um, considering that Cabaret is based on a true story. um, This movie is also loosely based on a true story. Uh, It's the story about a New York City police officer named Charlie Lang, who promises to split uh, any lottery winnings from a newly purchased ticket with diner waitress Yvonne uh, in lieu of a tip when he comes up short on his tab. And when the ticket turns out to be a winner, Charlie honors his agreement, much to Yvonne's surprise and the chagrin of his wife Muriel. The lottery win results in the gradual fracturing of Charlie's relationship with Muriel, and a deepening of his relationship with Yvonne. Uh, so I was interesting, or sorry, I was interested in what sort of the true story element of this movie was. And the true story is in 1984, uh, a waitress at a pizzeria in Yonkers named Phyllis Penzo who had been a longtime friend of Officer Robert Cunningham. They'd been friends for like 15 years. Um, He suggested they split a lottery ticket uh, in lieu of a tip when they both, with both of them choosing three of the six numbers. And she agreed and then basically forgot about it. And then the ticket ended up being a winner and he honored their agreement and they split the winnings. Like that is what this is based on. So that's just a a fun little bit of trivia about sort of what the impetus for the narrative was here. So what were your initial thoughts on this one?
1: So this is, uh, yeah, definitely not a movie I would have ever picked out myself. I have a slight aversion to Nicolas Cage movies that don't star him as someone stealing Nicholas from independence. (laughs) Um, but I'm really glad I watched this one. It was really good. It was super cute. And of all the rom-coms I've watched in the past three, I should say, um, this was definitely the most successful rom in the rom-com for me. It was very pleasant, very fun. uh, Really good all around. I'm
0: actually almost a little bit surprised to hear you say that. Uh, Full disclosure. I haven't watched this movie in a hot minute. It's been quite a long time. Um, probably not since I was a kid. I forget what the the first time I had ever seen this movie was, but uh, I had chosen it because I remember that the story was really, really cute sort of in the way that it came together. But coming at it from an adult in the industry that I work in and having just kind of a general different perspective, it was still cute. I really thought that um, Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda had, you know, Decent chemistry, but Charlie comes across as, like, very bland. He's, like, the most boring vanilla character. And I don't know if that's partly because of how Nicolas Cage portrays him or if that's how uh, he's I don't know.
1: I, I thought there was a decent amount there. I think it's just he's very different than any other rom-com lead I've seen. Um, just kind of going back to the beginning, so for me... Um, the kind of just general setup for this movie, I really liked how it kind of felt like a fairy tale, and it was set up very fairy tale esque and follows almost that kind of a narrative pattern. So I had no problem suspending my disbelief when almost none of it makes any logical sense. Like if this was set logically, no, it makes no sense. The law stuff, all the stuff with the lottery, all the stuff with their relationships—like practically none of the movie makes logical sense in a real world setting. But the way that it's set up with um, Yvonne and Charlie, they're very much like fairy tale characters. Like Charlie is the White Knight. Like he is Prince Charming. He really is like the male Mary Sue. Like, I guess that's why you get so much boring out of a character like him. But I think they do a really good job of setting up how earnest authentic good this guy is and in a normal rom-com that might really upset me almost because like you said he's kind of bland but at the same time because this is almost like a fairy tale story he just seems like such a nice guy and it just works and she is Yvonne is such a great character like I wrote down here that that first speech she gives in court is so good it is one of the best introductions to a character in a movie like this I've seen where she just gives us her entire backstory, her life backstory, essentially, in a way that did not feel forced. And it told me everything I needed to know about her character, about uh, she's like this down on her luck. She's so sincere and authentic and herself and um, frazzled and just like everything you learn about her in that scene just really sets her up well for the rest of the movie.
0: So before we go into the narrative a little bit, the movie starts with the audience being addressed directly, being told about who Charlie is, who uh, Yvonne is. Charlie is a New York City police officer. He lives in Queens. He was born in Queens. He works in Queens. He is like the best police officer ever, the most honest. Uh, We see scenes of him. You know doing a fireman's carry of a blind man who's walked out into traffic he's delivered yeah. a baby on the bus like he's the most honorable person that you could possibly ever dream of and then when we meet Yvonne she's in bankruptcy court she's pleading her case to a judge about why she should be declared bankrupt she's got $12,000 in debt on her credit card which she says that her ex-husband who she's not divorced from Um, I loved when she says, I'm divorced in my heart. It's like a lot of people feel that way, but unfortunately, that's not the legal reality. And if you're not divorced, then unfortunately, you are on the hook for your spouse's debt. Anyway, she, you know, pleads her whole case about how she moved from, I think she was like from the Midwest or something. That's usually where people come from when they're in New York. Um, And she was supposed to be an actor. And she married this guy who basically treated her like garbage and you know, put her in this financial mess, and please, oh, please, oh, please, won't you just have pity on me? And then the two characters meet when Charlie and his partner, who is played by uh, Wendell Pierce, uh, his name is Beau, they uh, prevent a robbery of a local bodega, and they go to get something to eat at this diner nearby, and two seconds after they place their order, they get a call and they have to leave. And Charlie doesn't have enough money in his wallet to pay the check and also give a tip. And so he says, Hey, I have this lottery ticket. How about if it's like, I'll give you an option. Next time I come in, you can either have double the tip or I'll split the winnings with you. And she fully expects to like, never see him again and basically plays it off and you know she's a waitress so she's she's
1: she's going through the worst day of her life like this she's in shambles at this moment
0: yeah yeah and being a waitress you know she's well and truly um used to people not tipping promising thing i mean like two seconds later she's getting berated by her boss because some guy said oh he left his wallet in his car, but he really did a dine and dash and she's getting uh crap for that. So after this, Charlie goes home and he and his wife discover that their ticket has won and of course they're paying attention to how many other people are claiming winnings so they can determine how much they get. And they end up winning four million dollars and Charlie has to tell Muriel, who's played by Rosie Perez, that He has promised to split the winnings with this diner waitress that he literally just met. And she is justifiably furious about this. Um, Jumping back. uh, So when they have that first meeting
1: at the, uh, at her restaurant where she's a waitress and she's just having the absolute worst day of her life. And he is uh, this sweet guy. He's being so nice to her and she is like honestly kind of being horrible to him very rude very flippant but like it's clear that she's having this terrible day and it's very interesting because the second time he comes back um clearly that was just a bad day for her and he starts to see this other side of her that second time when he comes back to give her the ticket because she is um we find out like really good at being a waitress she like really gets people um she's in a very good mood this time she's very happy and it's very clear that that was just like she was really just at her the bottom she was just at her bottom um and we see her in that scene like there's these uh two men that she serves we're led to believe basically of them every has day, AIDS. um and it's very clear right away that um the they're two gay mm-hmm. the, yeah they're two gay men and one of them has aids and it's Uh, very frankly talked about, and it's something that, like, really helped set the scene for 1994 New York City, and, um, but it also really informs her character, and she is, at that time, so nice and kind to this man that a lot of people at the time wouldn't be, um, and he, what I really liked, gives her a gift, uh, and, obviously, we get to the tip of the two million dollars, but before that, He gives her this gift of uh, a necklace or a little chain for her glasses because she's constantly losing her glasses. And within meeting her for five minutes, he's already picked up on this about her. Which is something I really like about his character is that he's so perceptive and just meeting her for five minutes on one of her worst days um, was able to get such an authentic gift for her. And she's so taken aback by that. Uh, And then he plays coy with the like, uh, okay, well, you can choose. Do you want double the tip or do you want... Uh, half of the winnings and she's just like kind of like oh yeah I'll just Mm -hmm. take half the winnings I don't care. Like she for all the that she needs the money it's clear that she's not a material person and she doesn't really care about the money. Like she's fine just taking half of nothing because she's basically saying it's fine I'll take half of nothing. I don't need double the tip I'll take half of nothing. And then it turns out that nothing is two million dollars. And she buys everyone ice cream a round of ice cream on their pie and goes fanatic and it's it's a really cute scene
0: with respect to the splitting of the money um like muriel is justified in her anger that he promised to do this but when you say split there's a lot of ways to split winnings like it doesn't necessarily mean 50 50 like he could have just given her he promised ten thousand dollars he no he said that they would split the winnings oh, really? he didn't necessarily right. say 50 50 so I think the 50-50 is yeah. generally implied, but like he could have talked to Muriel and be like, well, I did this thing, you know, like what would be a reasonable amount yeah. to give her? And of course, she probably would have said nothing, but you know, there are a lot well, of and, ways. And he
1: muses he muses about that with his cop partner. They're out on the yeah. streets and and he's just kind of playing it over in his head. He's clearly torn about it. Like, yeah. should I just give her like 10 grand? Should I just give her like a really good tip? Yeah. Uh, should I tell her we won fifty grand and split that? Yeah. Like, uh, he's like really torn about it. And uh, Muriel, we haven't really talked about yet, but um, from the very beginning of the movie, we are set up with Muriel as his uh, kind of bitchy, awful wife. And at first, I was like, oh, this is this is unfortunate because we get a scene of her in her hair salon um, after he's just gone out and rescued this blind man and delivered a baby we cut to her just bitching and bitching and bitching in her hair salon about how he doesn't have enough ambition i need more money he needs to make more money we need to be better off and uh, you get the sense right away of what character she is because the movie is telling you she's the bad one yeah Um, i mean it which i thought was really unfortunate there is other things later on that i want to talk about with her because i do think muriel has more layers than just being the evil stepsister in this fairy tale type of yes. thing but it was kind of unfortunate
0: i did make a note that um there's something about the fact that rosie perez is a woman of color being obsessed with money kind of oh, rubbed I the wrong way too. yeah so
1: just the pure fact that she's the woman of color and the villain yeah. too is a little unfortunate um
0: okay so, so they, she's
1: the only the only reason she comes on board i will say as well Ed, is that she uh Brian kind of, or Brian, oh my God, going back to the other movie. Charlie kind of convinces her, uh, oh, well, you'll get lots of endorsement deals and maybe you can, like, endorse things. And she's like, oh, I can endorse shampoos and conditioners. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, he really great.
0: plays to public perception of her in order to, yeah. Get, she. I mean, she's still not happy about it, but she's willing to play yeah, along Muriel, for the sake the of, woman with a heart yeah, of gold. she's really willing to play along for the sake of, uh, being perceived as this kind and generous person in the public even though that seems counter to I mean not that she's not a nice person but that she's sort of counter to how she's portrayed to us to that point yeah yeah so they're uh, they're out in New York together having dinner and kind of getting to know each other and at the same time
1: this is after the cruise right
0: uh, well, the night of the cruise, so they're out together, they're getting to know each yeah. other, and at the same time, we get um, scenes of Muriel, Muriel, who is on the cruise, and she's schmoozing, yeah, just, just and uh, she's getting in the explain pocket. That.
1: Like, they, they're they going on a fancy cruise, and then uh, Charlie sees uh, Muriel, or sorry, not Muriel, Charlie sees Yvonne struggling to uh, split a, uh, a $20 bill or something with this taxi cab, and... They fuddle around with money for a bit and he's like, oh, here, I'll uh, keep the change, and all this. And meanwhile, they're having this interaction. Yeah. The cruise ship just takes off without him. Um, and that's when we kind of get the the dinner and Muriel, none the wiser, yeah. just uh, yes. having this great so time. She's, with this Muriel is on
0: the ship. She's schmoozing. She's getting in the pocket of this rich guy, getting all kinds of tips about investments and ways that she can um, increase the money that she has currently won and doesn't even realize that Charlie has been gone this whole time, like doesn't really care. And um, so Yvonne gets to tell Charlie about her ex-husband, who's played by Stanley Tucci, um, give him her whole sob story. And yeah, it's just really cute the way that they kind of get to know each other. Um, They have, it's, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they have like uh, crazy chemistry, like they don't get together like a house on fire or anything. But there's definitely a good balance in their interactions.
1: I definitely think they had, out of the three rom-coms, I watched the best the best chemistry and like from the beginning. Um, and it's not like somewhere it's kind of one-sided. I got it from both of them, and I got it from kind of their second meeting. Like, he clearly, upon meeting her for the very first time, there's something there. And then for her, it's kind of beating him the second time. She barely paid attention the first time. Um, and then they keep... Fate keeps kind of pushing them together. There's this big thing about mm-hmm. fate in this movie. And fate keeps kind of pushing them together and together um, into these situations and scenarios where they're kind of like forced uh, to rekindle. Because they kind of stopped seeing each other for a while. Like, they, he splits the money and... Um, they don't interact for quite a while after that. Like he walks by her new restaurant she's bought and sees her happy and in this restaurant serving people, but like, doesn't yeah. want to go in. And it's not until fate kind of pushes them back together again, that they finally have this dinner rekindle again. And at which point they decide to kind of start hanging out again and just not tell yeah. Muriel.
0: So the part where the the story turns more to their growing relationship is um Charlie has donated more money to something and Muriel is furious and she kicks him out and at the same time uh Yvonne has come home and her husband Eddie has co- found out that she's won some money and he's come home looking for a handout it was it was one of my
1: biggest complaints that the whole kind of uh Chekhov's gun and rules of rule of three Mm -hmm. thing didn't really come through with that like it was never turned into like it's very clearly set up her ex-husband she's running away from him um they're still married all this stuff and then their divorce is never dealt with in the whole movie uh he never comes back and like really becomes a threat to her in any way um, doesn't try and take any of her money, like, oh, we're going to divorce now, and now I'm getting half of it. Like, there's never any sort of play for the money, really. He just comes over and steals her nuts. Like, she's got a can of nuts she's really protective of, and he takes it from her. And, like, yeah, that's not gonna the most she really is to her, which is interesting. <laughs> I, I know. But, like, I was really expecting that to be, like, her version of Muriel. And... It was, but it wasn't. Like, Muriel was very much a threat and was the obstacle. He really wasn't an obstacle in a lot of ways. And I'm not really upset about that. It's just the movie set me up to think that that was going to happen and then never followed through. There was never a third in the rule of threes. The Chekhov's gun never really went off.
0: Yeah. It seems like Eddie mostly was concerned with her bankrolling some project that he was doing. And if he had gotten that money, he otherwise would have been uh, happy. Like he wasn't really about taking her for half of what she was worth. It was just like, hey, give me a little bit of money to work on this project, and then Which I'll leave. Odd
1: to me because he bankrupted her, and I don't know. Yeah. I just it was just weird to me. That's all.
0: So following this um, being kicked out, and uh, yeah, uh, Yvonne leaving her she apartment waved. to get away from Eddie. Um, both Charlie and Yvonne end up at the same hotel. Uh, what hotel? oh yeah the plaza
1: the plaza (laughs) the plaza again fate it's out of fate neither of them knew they were just both going to the plaza the same night
0: and that's where the relationship really starts yeah that's where they both
1: kiss for the first time in this pretty wonderful scene honestly where they're they're both like get a room that's one one down from the other one they like kind of awkwardly because they came there separately They got rooms separately, but they're, like, checking in at the same time, and it's super awkward, and the two guys lead them to their rooms, and, like, oh, you're down here, you're up here, and they kind of, like, awkwardly go in their room, and then, like, not even five seconds later, uh, I think, is it Charlie that goes to Yvonne's
0: room, or is it the opposite? I think he goes to her room, but I don't remember.
1: Yeah, and, like, awkwardly kind of stumbles in, and it's like, "Oh, uh, oh, I think she goes to his to tell him, oh, there's robes in the bathroom have you seen these robes and, like, and he offers her some fruit like oh i guess you have fruit too all these rooms are the same and they're like kind of awkwardly stumbling and there's clearly something there but neither one really wants to make the move
0: yeah. something that's funny about the arrival at the plaza is that uh, yvonne is just checking in and the receptionist is asking oh do you want a single when charlie arrives so they certainly yeah. could have
1: which is great made it go a different but way neither of them wants to no yeah yeah. It's this super awkward thing where they both want to just like, hey, let's just share a room. But that's way too forward for these two people who are both so not those kind of people. They like, neither one of them is a very like, uh, boisterous, like outgoing forward person, really.
0: Yeah. I think there's also already been a question of what kind of relationship they had prior to this whole exchange. Yeah. Still.
1: Like they're both married still. They both know that neither one of them is in a good place. And then I think it's when you fu- when Yvonne and Charlie tells her, like, oh, yeah, Muriel kicked me out. Like, it's over kind of thing. And, uh,
0: yeah. Just going back they to the, uh, the excuse of being like, oh, there's robes in the room and you can buy them. And, like, maybe we could split it and then share it. Uh, yeah. Also kind of speaks to the fact that neither of them have a lot of experience with the more upper class kind of situation oh, no. where yeah. it's like uh, just having this plush robe in your room is such a novelty.
1: Yeah. Neither one of them um, really change after they get the money as personality wise. Uh, whereas Muriel definitely does. Like Muriel goes ham to the wall, buying everything. She buys the fur coat. She buys the Tiffany's. She buys everything. Yeah.
0: She's renovating um, their apartment of, so that they can get yeah. more money when um it goes co-op um she gets breast implants which she uh wants which is acknowledged in a a very funny scene towards the end where yeah yeah. Um,
1: um but neither one of them really change and both of them are very happy to just throw their money at other causes and this is very well depicted with like uh yvonne opening her own restaurant i like the that she basically, she's this aspiring actress that moves to New York City. And then she kind of admits to herself after she gets all this money, like, I'm kind of just a better waitress. Like, I'm a good waitress. Like, I'm good with people. Um, and that, like, dreams can kind of shift. And she just opens her own restaurant, is super happy with it. And then she has a little table in uh, Charlie's name that if people don't have enough money to pay, they can come sit there and get free lunch. It's very sweet. Mm-hmm. And Charlie uh, buys the whole uh, Yankee stadium up to get the underprivileged kids from his side of the town to come play uh, baseball and everything. And uh, Muriel's the whole time furious that they're just like throwing money away. Yeah.
0: There are a lot of scenes where, you know, they're just out shopping and he's stuffing like hundred dollar bills in. um, Yeah. Cups for homeless people. And she's turning around and pulling it back out, which truly is
1: the worst thing. Okay. I think now is a good time to talk I've been meaning to talk about this the fact that it is 2 million dollars they have and how crazy that is in 2020 compared to 1994 like how little that would get you now the whole time I'm just thinking you can't keep throwing that much money away that's only 2 million dollars you could barely buy anything with 2 million dollars you can get you can barely get an apartment <laughs> even in 1994
0: even the scene where Yvonne is having a hard time splitting $20 for the cap, I was like, in 2020, you would probably bang $20 plus for that cap ride. Yeah. Including a tip. So, you know, it's the fact, whole that, money the fact thing that she even had to funny. haggle over splitting a $20, like you literally just won $2 million. Just give the $20 and be done with it. Like, why are you even fussing?
1: Yeah. I think it's supposed to show that, like, she's not in the mindset that she's that rich yet, and she, like, is so used to not having enough money. Yeah, I
0: mean, I know that, that it, it really relates to her frugality, to but at the same time, it's like, if you can't split $20, like, at this point in time, yeah. you can just give $20 and be done with it, and, like, not have to... Yeah, and
1: which is what Charlie, which is what Charlie yeah. tells her. <laughs> uh, yeah, the $2 million thing, like... That's when I kind of got a little bit on Muriel's side for some of this movie because she realizes, like, okay, we're splitting this $2 million. That's even in 1994, $2 million isn't in New York City uh, when you want to have kids and all this. That's not going to last forever. So she's smartly thinking we can put some of this money into the apartment and flip it. We can put stuff in stocks, get investments. Like, she's really good with it, too, which the movie, like, does a good job at portraying her as being very smart like she's investing a lot of this money and she clearly knows a lot when she's on this cruise talking to this rich guy Mm -hmm. it's not just that she's like gold digging into him so much as she's just like got her notepad out and she's taking notes okay yeah I'm gonna invest in this and what do you think about these bonds and these stocks and what do you think about this and like she's like really smart which was nice to see and for a moment I thought the movie was gonna like not really completely turn her into the villain we'll get to
0: later yeah
1: Yeah, so they have the night at the plaza, um, and then as they kind of stumble out the next morning, all the photographers of all the newspapers start taking photos, and it comes out that, like, the lotto lovers or whatever, and Muriel finds out, and um, then... There's a bitter divorce settlement, which is, I'm sure, one of your favorite scenes.
0: <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that it was my favorite scene. Okay, so two different things about divorce. At the very beginning, when Yvonne is in divorce court, she says to the judge, do you know how much it costs to get divorced? I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> I don't know how much it costs to get divorced in the States, but I certainly know how much it costs to get divorced in British Columbia. To our listeners, I work as a legal assistant in family law, so, like, that's kind of my area yeah. of proficiency and then at the end um i don't even know why charlie hired a lawyer when
1: she's like a family friend i think you get the sense that they know each other
0: yeah but even still like they're in negotiations and he's just like i'm not gonna listen and the lawyer's like putting his hands on his head it's like what do you mean she can have everything like He's just so beside himself. I don't know how common that is for people to just like yeah. say that right at the table. It's not uncommon for people to fully disregard the legal advice that they're receiving from their counsel. They basically but, end up in um, in this uh,
1: legal battle, and she wants all of the money that yeah. all the two million that was going to be theirs. And he's like, "Fine, take it. I don't care." And then uh, she. Yeah. Yes, he wants, and then she, she pushes further saying that, that because she picked the lottery ticket or whatever, or picked the numbers, that Yvonne's two million has to be returned, and that she should get all of it, to which, obviously, yeah. he's flipping out. Like, he doesn't care about the money, about his half of the money, but it's when she starts going after Yvonne that he actually does care, which is, again, not about the money so much as it's yeah. about Yvonne. Like, he really does not care about money.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what is going on in terms of, like, the court proceeding that happens. I don't know if that's, like, a civil suit that um, Uriel brings, because you wouldn't really have, like, a full jury trial for family law. Although I don't really know how it works down in the States for that. But I think they just wanted um, the
1: big flashy court scene. Yeah.
0: I guess. But I was just like, that's not really how that would work. And I guess it would be civil suit against um, Yvonne to get the money back because it wouldn't make sense for it to be the family stuff if she's trying to get money from somebody else. But um, yeah, that's just her hotshot lawyer who uh, it's like grilling Yvonne about how long they've known each other and what kind of relationship they had and blah, blah, blah. And just, you know, she gets to say two words and mm. he immediately cuts her off. Yeah. You know, oh, point proved.
1: Yeah. She's hired this like smarmy lawyer. Who's like, just,
0: yeah. Clearly a
1: lot better than uh, Charlie's terrible friend of the family lawyer that is kind of a buffoon. Um, reminded me a little bit of the Arrested Development uh, family lawyer. <laughs> a little bit. Just like, oh my god. He's like so happy that he argues like, well, if you guys get the $2 million, we're, we're having whatever they have uh, in joint savings or whatever, which is like $3,000. <laughs> And he's like so yeah. proud of himself. Like, and they're like, okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And then it turns out after that, uh, so in she wins and Muriel successfully gets all the money back, which I wasn't actually expecting, but it was an interesting twist.
0: I mean, to be fair, like at the time that the ticket was purchased, like coming from a family law perspective, um, at the time the ticket was purchased, like Charlie knew that that money was going to be for him and Muriel and the winnings would have been considered what's called family property. So he didn't really have the right to arbitrarily make a decision to give a stranger yeah, half of the proceeds without Muriel's consent. So it kind of makes sense in the end that she ends up getting everything I back. I think
1: it's largely because.
0: I agree that it's a little bit yeah. surprising, but if, like from an actual sort of legal perspective, like it would make the, sense for her to get it.
1: Like he clearly. Like, when they're picking the lottery numbers, she tells him to pick 27, which is uh, the day they celebrate their anniversary. But their anniversary is actually on the 26th. So he put down the 26th instead. Yeah. And it was his choice to change the number to 26 that actually won them the ticket. And if he had followed her advice, they wouldn't have won. So it really was his ticket and his numbers. But then the, his lawyer can't convince the like the other lawyer... Uh, has like uh, Rosie Perez's character Muriel basically put on this whole show and convince everyone that she did pick the numbers because of her father's ghost and all this stuff.
0: Yeah, but I mean, despite the show that she's putting on, it's like, they're married, he bought the ticket with their money, with the knowledge that the winnings would be yeah. their joint winnings, therefore it is family property, like, regardless of who picked the numbers or whatever, they're married, it's their money, like, it was going to be a joint thing, so, ultimately, who picked the number and what the difference was on that one thing is kind of irrelevant yeah. in reality, but for the sake the of the narrative, yeah. On
1: the like, Who picked the numbers, but, uh. Definitely yeah. a lot of uh, that stuff is not... Like that, that's reality. why it
0: would make more sense if that whole trial... Yeah, that's why it would make more sense if the trial was like a civil trial. Because then information like that would make more yeah. impact. Um But yeah, ultimately, like in terms of how the money is divided from a family perspective, like it doesn't matter who picked what number. Like they're married, the money was going to be theirs.
1: And this is kind of property. the point of the movie where I really became not super comfortable with how muriel was being portrayed and i really thought that like muriel was gonna kind of get a ton of money from the divorce and be happy going off by herself maybe go back with that uh guy on the boat or whatever and like and yeah that would kind of be the end of muriel's story but it's just uh it's frustrating like as a person of color she's being kind of painted into like a joke character a lot of points she really becomes like this almost mustache twirling villain that we're led to believe is doing all this just to spite Yvonne really it's like a lot of it seems we put it to spite rather than the money and I thought like there was there was a lot of ways that this could have been done differently like my kind of idea for the movie um would be that she's just a person whose goals are at odds with his, and that's what's causing the conflict. Not so much her being evil, just that they have very different goals. Like, and that's kind of what the movie does start to paint out. And it was the movie was so close to doing it until she the whole trial thing. Like, they could have lost the money another way. Maybe uh, like Muriel could have put all the money that they got into that uh, scheme that the rich guy was talking about. Like, oh, I'm gonna put all my money into this and then that goes bankrupt or whatever, and they lose all the money. So Maya, she, without telling him, puts all their money into this uh, get-rich-quick get scheme to, like, triple the money or whatever yeah. that he suggests. They lose all of it. Yvonne donates the money to, like, bail them out or whatever. So all of Yvonne's money is gone because she's given it to get them out of whatever this financial troubles put them into that. So now they're all down to zero, and it puts yeah. them in the same place that they were before um but like we don't have to have like muriel be this mustache twirling villain so much maybe it Mm -hmm. all kind of ends up in the same place i thought there was like the seeds of things to like if you were rewriting this movie it wouldn't be hard to take rosie price's character and turn her into just a woman that had very different goals and dreams than him they were high school sweethearts they fell in love And at some point they changed and became different people, which they acknowledge, like when they have the scene where he is kicked out by her, like they acknowledge, like we're just very different people now. And I thought ending on that scene would have been kind of good for their relationship. Like that would have kind of, yeah, that's the end of our relationship, but we realize it's just because we're different people.
0: Yeah. I mean, even the fact that like, uh, I think it's when Charlie and Yvonne are out for dinner the first time, the night of the cruise, where he reveals that Muriel is like the only woman he's ever slept with. She is pretty much the first and only relationship he's ever had. I thought that was so cute, but it also says so much about the relationship because um, specifically with Charlie, with the respect to the way that he doesn't want to leave Queens and he's comfortable and he has a tendency to just yeah. kind of stick with what he knows. But at the same time, um, you know, not acknowledging that um, other people in his life need to change or that maybe they're just not the right fit for him because if he had you know not married Muriel and allowed her to not allowed her but like if she had um, taken the opportunity to uh, move out and you know explore the world in the way that she wanted then they would have been in very different situations that would have been better suited to their ideal circumstances
1: in regards to him like being comfortable just like being in Queens I really liked how they were kind of given the titles like the cop and the waitress and that kind of kept coming up because they Mm -hmm. really each do embody that role like he is very much like this archetypical like good guy cop and she's very much this caring giving friendly waitress and I like that the whole idea of them when they like run out of money or whatever And Muriel's taking it all. It's like, we could just go to Buffalo. Like, I could join the Buffalo police force. And then she goes, I could be a Buffalo waitress. Like, they can just do the same thing somewhere else.
0: Any final thoughts on this one?
1: I really thought the ending was super cute, where they're all out of money now. And uh, the whole ending is that the whole time the guy who's been narrating this... um, This character we constantly kind of see in the background turns out he's like a New York City or New York Post reporter who's kind of been doing this story on them and the night they're kind of at their lowest again Muriel has taken all their money they go back to her restaurant that's like getting foreclosed or whatever before it gets closed and they're kind of just dancing sweetly and like yeah we're gonna go to Buffalo we'll be fine we don't need money. And he shows up knocking at the door as a uh, dressed, uh, presenting as like a homeless person needs some food. And they let him inside and give him some soup as they kind of awkwardly dance in front of him, which I thought was really funny. They're just kind of like awkwardly dancing while he's eating soup. And then we. it turns out he's been doing a story on them and he publishes this whole story about how selfless they are and like the true story of all that they've been doing. And then people start sending in letters with like five dollars, ten dollars, like little bits of money here and there, which totals up to like six hundred thousand dollars so they can reopen the restaurant and everything. I just thought it was really cute because it was like a, a GoFundMe before GoFundMe existed. <laughs> it was that very much that idea, <laughs> but like all manually via post. They get like thousands of letters that just like pour in. It's great. I thought for a second that the, the black guy has been following them around the whole time, Angel, I thought Angel was going to be, like, magical or something. Because <laughs> it was such, like, a fairy tale for me, the, like, the framing of it and everything. Like, in the end, he's going to be, like, the fairy godfather mm. character or something. I don't know. But it wasn't. It was cute, though.
0: Okay, so in terms of our catch-up reading... Uh, where does it fall for you? Perfect hands is, could use some ketchup or douse it. Um,
1: I think for me it's I think this is uh, probably what I've done for most of them, but it could use a little bit of ketchup. Again, for me it, it always comes down to like one plotline or storyline that just really rubs me the wrong way and I, I think it would be different if this movie came out in 2020. Like if they redid this movie, I don't think Muriel would be treated the same way. And that was just my big gripe with it is that I loved the plot line with Charlie and Yvonne. I don't think that really needed to be changed. It was sweet, adorable. I loved their romance, them getting together. It was believable. I really liked how it happened over a longer period of time in this movie, but I would have to change that Muriel plot line, honestly, because it's it just does not hold up. And I just don't like her being the villain. Apart from that is close to being a perfect close for me.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Uh- rewatching it after so many years and coming from a different perspective, I would say it definitely could use some catch up um, just to sort of fill in those little areas where the story stumbled a little bit.
1: I enjoyed it though. It was really cute. Well, that's going to be it for us for this episode. Uh, Join us again next episode where we catch up on another movie with each other.